0: Let's get started. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your kind mercies. I pray, dear God, that your good spirit will help us to teach your word and not only teach it, but Lord set our hearts to obey it. Oh God, we are so small. So unwise So in need of of your power to strengthen us, to keep us from sin, to be able to do virtue, to carry out the ministry, we need thee, O God. And help us now, Lord, that we might study what it means to be a minister of Christ. In Jesus name. Amen. All right. Well, I'm going to read from First Timothy, Chapter three. And we're going to be looking still at the characteristics of of an elder. And so verse one, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable. Free from the love of money, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Um, We've all already gone through um, those virtues found in. In verses one through five. And I believe now we're going to look at the others. If I'm correct and beginning in verse six. Now in each one of these virtues I'm going to read. um, And then uh, just a few notes that I've I've written. And then we'll go on to explanation. Um, He says in verse six, not a new convert. Not a new believer. Now, the phrase is translated from a Greek adjective, which denotes something newly planted. And uh, that is a, a wonderful metaphor for what happens in the Christian life that. That the seed of the word of God is planted, it is watered by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and life is produced. But that life, when it uh, begins to spring up, is is very tender, very malleable. Um, It's still in a precarious or dangerous position. Figuratively, it denotes a recent convert, a new believer, no matter how gifted should never hold the office of elder. To ignore this requirement is to expose both the congregation and the new convert to irreparable spiritual harm. Paul warns that ordaining an immature believer may fill him with the pride or conceit that led to the devil's condemnation. Here, the word conceit comes from a Greek word, which literally means to envelop in smoke. It may mean to be enveloped in pride, to be filled with pride, or also to be blinded by pride. All of these metaphors, of course, fit. Um, I I want you to notice that in the New Testament, there are three terms used to describe a minister of Christ within the congregation. He is an he is an overseer. Uh, He is a pastor. And he is an elder and um, increasingly my experience um, shows me the absolute essentiality of this prohibition that we need to be very, very careful before we lay our hands on anyone, as Paul tells Timothy later on, we need to be very careful, but we also need to be very wary if this is a young man. Now, here it says, not a recent convert, but I would carry that a little further. Um, Let let me give you an example from the world. Uh, Let's say that uh, you own a, a boxing ring where you're training professional boxers. And you notice a 15 year old or 16 year old that is exceptionally gifted, exceptionally gifted now. You could put him in the ring to fight contenders and he may survive, but he may be beaten up so badly in his tender years that he never goes back in the ring again. And maybe you have a world champion on your hands, but because you put him in the ring too quickly, you destroyed every opportunity of him becoming what he needs to become. Now. The harvest is great and the laborers are few. That is true. And what we're called to do in response to that is to pray. But what do we often do? We turn to pragmatism. We think, well, any worker is better than no worker. Or any elder working alongside me is better than no elder at all. That is simply not true. There are a lot of good men out there that God has raised up, and you could set your eye on them, but by putting them in the ministry too early, you will bring about their downfall. Now, he says, not a new convert. There's a lot of reasons why we should not put new converts or even young believers into the role of an elder. But first of all, it says, so that he will not become conceited. You know, over my life, I have seen something. If you tell me that a man is humble, that means very little to me. The question is, in what context is he humble? I have seen that both, well, that wealth, fame, and authority is what will truly determine whether a man is humble or not. Many men that appear to be humble when they have no authority, have no fame and have no money, may quickly reveal themselves as being quite proud. And so the reason why the word dokimazo is used to test is that on the surface, someone may look very, very humble, but once you put them in a position of leadership, everything changes. Young men oftentimes, uh, especially those who seem to advance quickly in the things of Christ, they can develop an attitude of thinking they know all the answers when in fact they don't even understand the questions. Now, here it says that they can become conceited that power, authority, respect in the church well, somehow we could say change them, but it really doesn't. It simply reveals who they always were. I remember reading a, a story. It was something of a fantasy um, work, years and years and years ago, where this old wizard and this young <laughs> apprentice or whatever are skulking around trying to spy on this prince or something. This was. A hundred years ago, I read this. and um, they saw the young prince and they saw him in a room all alone. And then all of a sudden, this handsome young prince turned into a horrific looking dragon. And the young apprentice said, oh, my, the prince has turned into a dragon. And the, the old man said, no, the prince has now revealed what he always has been. And. But there are young men that have great possibility, but if they're put into the ministry too early, especially in the role of elder, they can fall into what they can fall into the snare of the devil. They can be tempted with conceit, with power, with abuse of power, and eventually it will lead to their downfall and the downfall of the church. Now, I want to say something here that I don't want to mention names, but I have talked to recently because I've been concerned about something. I have talked to some very godly and well-known men. If I mentioned their names, you would probably know them. And I shared with them a concern that they said they themselves uh, were concerned about that. Prior to probably 10 or 15 years ago, there wasn't uh, much talk with regard to elders in the context of evangelicalism or especially the Baptist Church. Pastors were pastors. And usually what happened was there was a congregation. It was congregationally led. And then you would have one pastor and maybe maybe deacons. And then gradually uh, people started looking at Ecclesiology and the scriptures, and they saw the importance of elders. But sometimes when something happens like that, instead of going to the center, to the truth, we go past the center into extremes. And on top of that, we've allowed a lot of very young men to be elders. And so what has happened in many cases? Among the elders, there's a pecking order so that there is it's kind of like I think the book Watership Down where it says all animals are equal. It's just some animals are more equal than others. I think that was Watership Down Um, in which you actually have one man ruling over other elders or um, not being transparent with the other elders. And then, since it's elder led, the congregation has little knowledge of what's going on. And in the end, what you're doing is protecting a tyranny. Or you have a group of young men who've gathered together, sort of like the young men who counseled Rehoboam. And they do not listen to the congregation. They are not transparent with the congregation. The congregation no longer has voice or vote. And then the question comes up or who's going to hold these young men accountable? In the Baptist faith denominations, we believe that the church is autonomous. So when you have elders ruling, the congregation is kept in the dark, then who holds the elders accountable? Are you beginning to see the problem? We need to be very, very careful. That we do not go to extremes. I personally believe that that the scriptures are quite clear that there is great authority in the congregation. And I believe that elders lead not by knowing everything and excluding everyone else from the information, not by uh, being the fountain of all wisdom in the church so that they're directing people's personal lives. I believe that elders lead through the exposition of scripture, they stand before the people and expound the scriptures and they lead the people by their example and they limit any type of authority to what is written. Not only that, but they invest time in making the congregation mature so the congregation can also hold them accountable. Let me give you an example. Um, I was dealing with someone on the phone last year and the person's rather troublesome. And I was giving them counsel, speaking with them. And my 16 year old son, he overheard the conversation on my part, at least. And um, after I finished the conversation, my son came to me, a son that I have taught the Bible since he was about five years old. And he said, Dad, everything you said there was true. But, Dad, I think you could have said it differently. So I taught my son to be mature so that he could also speak into my life. I don't want my children to live in eternal ignorance so that I can rule over them. I want them to become mature. So that as they become believers, they can also speak into the life of their father. It's the same way with the congregation, men. You should not desire that the congregation become dependent upon you. You should be constantly seeking to work yourself out of a job and to train people to study the scriptures themselves so that they can hold you accountable. Be very careful of a lot of things that's being said about elders today. And it's it's authority that is unchecked. The congregation is kept in ignorance. And it's a dangerous situation and it's even more dangerous when there is a leader or more than one leader that keeps all the other leaders in the dark. There are a lot of imbalances out there today, and we need to be very, very careful, especially when I see a lot of young men coming out of seminary that are untested and immediately taking the role of an elder. You need to walk in great humility. You need to walk with a healthy measure of self doubt. You need to make yourself accountable to the congregation. You need to train up the congregation, Ephesians, chapter four, verses 11 and 12, so that the congregation is also ministering and walking together with you. These things are very, very important that I think I fear that a lot of young men. They're too confident in themselves. They're not putting up parameters, biblical parameters. Another thing that's very important is when elders are constantly dealing with things and keeping the church in the dark. Uh, I told a group of elders recently that, you know, if if those epistles from the Apostle Paul had been sent to you, you would have cut out most of it. Kept it for yourself and hidden it from the church. But notice that Paul wrote to the church first. Notice that he didn't say elders tell the church this. He wrote directly to the church. Not only that, he he didn't say husbands demand that your wives submit. He wrote directly to the women. He didn't say parents tell your children to obey. He wrote directly to the children. Be very careful of in the name of leadership and authority and power that you're not cutting the church out of its responsibility. And putting yourself in danger, and I see a lot of young men doing this and they need to be very, very careful. Also, I think if that it would be much more comforting if if especially young men were using the word pastor or shepherd more than elder. Although elder is a biblical term and should be used appropriately. I think if we want to set forth what we really are. We're, we're shepherd servants. We're shepherd servants. Do you see that? And, and let, let me say this also, I, I think it, when I was a young man and old, older <laughs> to me, he was real old, but now I'm older than him um, at the time, um, a Peruvian pastor came to me. Uh, The church that I had planted in Lima was growing very fast and was now in a cinema and it was mainly new believers. And he said, Paul, I want to talk to you about idolatry. I thought, wow, that's serious. So we met one day and I said, what do you mean? He said, when someone comes to you. Now, he says, I'm not talking about a, a matter that's crucial or critical or must be dealt with quickly. But let's say someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm struggling with loving my wife or I'm struggling with patience. What do you do? And I said, well, I open up my Bible and I counsel them. He said, exactly. You're leading your people into idolatry. And I thought, what do you mean? Now, he was saying it in an exaggerated way in order to press a point. He said, Paul, they came to you. They came to you. Did they go to the Lord? First. Or did they come to you first? Are you teaching them to come to you first? Or are you teaching them to go to the Lord via study of the word and prayer? And I asked him, I was probably 28 at the time, I said, what do you do? And he says, again, let me put this important exception. If they're in a terrible state, if it's a crucial matter, I'm going to deal with them immediately in Scripture. But when it's not and they come to me and say something like, I'm having trouble loving my wife, the first thing I ask them is in your study of Scripture and in your prayer life, what is God showed you? And he goes, for the most part, they tell they would tell me, well, I haven't done that. I came to you. Exactly. Why did you come to me and not go to the Lord? And I said, well, then what do you do? He says, I I tell them, go home for a week or two. I want you to study the scriptures and I want you to pray and then you come back and tell me what God showed you about this matter. And he said, usually when I say that, when they're brand new, they say, well, I don't even know where to look. So he says, so I have printed out a sheet. With all the citations of all the verses they need to read with regard to the matter. And I say here, go home, look these up, read through them, pray and then come back to me and show me what the Lord has showed you. And he said, you know, Paul, when they come back, I have to help them probably a bit with their hermeneutic. I have to help them see, you know, maybe they. Didn't consider other texts when they were making their decision regarding the interpretation. He said, but Paul, do you see what I'm doing? I'm sending them to Christ. I'm sending them to the word. I'm teaching God's people to depend on Christ, to depend on scripture. Now, let me add to this. Um, I've said that a pastor needs to work himself out of a job. There's one sense in which we never work ourselves out of a job because people will always need us just like we will always need people. Another thing you need to understand is a pastor never works himself out of a job because there hopefully there will always be new believers. But we need to work so that the people who are in our church become more and more independent of us that men become more independent of us, that women, that, that that people grow to maturity. If you see me walking across a parking lot, a busy parking lot with my six year old daughter and I'm holding her hand, you would think that's appropriate. But if I was holding the hand of my 20 year old son, who's six foot five, you would think there's something rather wrong, twisted. Well. Let me ask you, do you you desire such power? Do you desire to be the center of your congregation? Do you desire that every time they have a biblical question, they come to you? If that's your desire, I would really encourage you to search your heart and maybe leave the ministry, at least for a while. Your desire is to make mature believers that can also in turn hold you accountable. Do you see that? And I'm afraid that a lot of young men have taken this authority thing too far. They've cut the church out of many decisions. They're not transparent. They deal with things behind closed doors. And in many ways, they've gone to an extreme. And some people do it because of ignorance, but I will tell you there's always wolves who do it on purpose. Because they love power. They love control. So be very, very careful here, especially if you're a new convert. Now, let's go on to the next. It says in verse seven, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. A good reputation with those outside the church. This is from the Greek noun, which literally means testimony, a good testimony, a healthy testimony. The elder must have a proven testimony among unbelievers as well as believers. Do you see that? Some people have this, I I don't know, this strange idea that unbelievers, their opinion does not matter. It does. It matters a great deal. We're not just called to be kind to believers, but to unbelievers. We're not just kind to or we're not just called to love our brothers, but to love our enemies. We should seek to have a reputation, a good reputation among unbelievers. Now, here's another thing that pops up, though. Uh, There are a lot of pastors that are so isolated from unbelievers, (laughs) they don't have a good reputation, not because they're sinful, but just because they're never around unbelievers. You know, I I went up into a a city near here uh, last week and I was kind of looking for a, a, a place where we could put heart cry for a temporary place and... In many places, I got just got out of my car and I kind of walked the streets. Gave me the opportunity to witness to people on the streets, to talk to people, unbelievers, Uh, food trucks. I went by there. I went into a restaurant. I went into a a store where a a Hindu man was selling uh, statues and idols and all sorts of things. And I went out and talked to people. And I realized how necessary that is for us who are in the ministry. Be careful that you're not so isolated from unbelievers that you can't have even a good or bad reputation among them. I would want for all of you that you had such a reputation as that man will tell you the truth. And it may be offensive, but he won't say it in an offensive way, and he's always kind. He's always virtuous. I don't believe what he believes, but I have to honor him for his conduct among us. I believe it was Richard Sibbs, the famous Puritan, that they said heaven was in him before he was in heaven. And people would talk about his empathy. Of pleading with sinners, his love, his kindness. So we need to have a good reputation. Now, I've also written here that the elder is often seen as the representative of the church, the gospel and Christianity to the ever watching, unbelieving community. Is that not true? I mean, you can have a congregation of a thousand people who are all godly, but if the minister fails, it'll be all over the news. Uh, We, in a sense, represent rightly or wrongly. Um, people are going to view Christianity according to the way they view us. Right now, there are so many scandals in the United States among ministers and denominations that um, it's painful. That, you know, if I'm sitting on an airplane and someone asks me, what do I do? If I were to tell them I'm a physicist or a forest fighter forest firefighter or a fireman, or are all sorts of things. They would admire it, but when I tell them I'm a minister of the gospel, they already have preconceived notions that I'm someone who is a TV evangelist who just wants to take money from old people. So we, we need to work at this. We truly need to work at this. I believe the primary responsibility of the church is proclamation, the primary responsibility of a minister of Christ is proclamation. But we've reached a point where we're going to have to earn that. Right. By our kindness, by our interest in the lives of other people. So I've written here that the elder is often seen as the representative of the church, the gospel and Christianity to the ever watching unbelieving community who's already predisposed to believing that we're even lower than a politician. For this reason, the devil will seek to bring about the elders moral downfall in order to ruin the reputation of the church and the gospel it proclaims. A proven and enduring testimony before all serves as a great defense against such attacks. If you're a true minister of Christ and you truly care for your people and you're a servant, then you're in the crosshairs. Now, uh, of course, I'm from a place where we shoot guns a lot. <laughs> the crosshairs are in a scope of a gun, and you put those crosshairs right on the animal that you're wanting to kill. And that's where you are. Even if you're not famous or well known, even if you've not published many books, you need to know that if you are a faithful minister of Christ, you're in the devil's crosshairs. If you're seeking to be a faithful f- husband or father, you're going to be in the devil's crosshairs. To the degree that you've been given authority and exposure, you are going to be in the devil's crosshairs. I have known some men, uh, I know men who have been so mightily used of God, and I see young men that want to be like them. They want to be used that way. And I kind of have to warn them, you really don't want that. Because you have no idea how much that man has had to suffer. It is horrific sometimes. Okay. Also, be very careful as a new convert. Um, We'll go back to that for a minute about making boastful remarks regarding the devil or boastful challenges regarding the devil. If it was not for the grace of Christ, his protecting spirit. If it wasn't for his sovereignty. He would swallow us up in a millisecond. He would destroy everything about you. You are in constant need of Christ's grace and Christ's protection. And there needs to be a healthy level of fear. The first thing you should pray when you get up in the morning is. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You cannot stand against him. Young man, you cannot stand against him. And if you think so, it's never it's because you never look down the mouth of that lion. Only Christ can protect you. You know, um, when I was younger. I'll never forget someone introduced me as a a cross between the Apostle Paul and Indiana Jones. (laughs) Well, I'm neither, that's for sure. But yeah, I've been in a lot of strange places. And experienced a lot of been in dangerous places. But here's what you need to understand. Left by myself in those places, I wouldn't have made it a second. All my times in the jungle, I did okay, because I had people with me who knew the jungle. I've walked in some very dangerous inner city streets. Um, I wouldn't I'm a farm boy from Illinois, I would not have lasted a few seconds, but I was with people from those neighborhoods who knew what they were doing and respected. So I've been able to do a lot of things, but only because I've been with people who knew what they were doing. I did not. Well, it's the same way, but even more so in the ministry, we can do things. Far beyond us, if Christ is with us. But if he's not with us, you will not last a millisecond, brethren. You will not last a millisecond. You need to cling to him like a little boy walking through a forest who clings to the leg of his father when he hears. A mountain lion roar. Or a bear coming. Do not separate yourself, do not live independently of Christ, do not think that you've got enough theology to make it on your own. You will be eaten alive. You truly will. Now, needs to be a man of a good reputation, but also it says in verse seven, and he must. Um, let's see where we are here. No, I want to go for a moment, and I want to pick up in Titus one seven. I'm sorry, Titus one seven. It says here. That And we've gone through some of these for the overseer must be above reproach as a God steward, not self-willed. So in Titus, he adds to the idea that this elder, this pastor, this overseer must not be self-willed. It's from the Greek adjective, which denotes someone who is self-pleasing, self-willed, and because of that, arrogant and overbearing. The elder must submit his will to the will of God and be willing to listen to and submit to the counsel of others. You need to read Job. There's a statement there that wisdom will not die with you. And I like to add this wisdom was not born with me and wisdom will not die with me. I am not the exclusive possessor of wisdom. As a matter of fact, I look in the mirror and I see very little wisdom in this man's face. So how do we lead according to the word of God and where the word of God is silent, we must be silent. We must not meddle in places where we have no authority. And we must be willing to listen to others and submit to the counsel of others. If it's always your way or the highway, sooner or later. The road you've taken is going to lead to destruction. Especially I've seen this among elders, let's say you have an elder body, but one of them, it's his way. It's either his way by strength of will or it's his way by deception or it's his way by hiding things from the other elders. Need to be very, very careful here. Very careful. Now, self-willed also means the not being self-willed also means that he must do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard others as more important than himself and not merely look out for his own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Philippians two, three and four. When I hear men come to me with a vision. I almost get nauseous. I am so tired of men with visions. Well, without a vision, the people perish. Well, you need to read that text in the Hebrew because the idea there is without a revelation of God's law, the people perish, not your vision. So many men have these ideas of grandeur and of doing great things so that they've got a plan and they're going to go their way. And if someone doesn't fit into that plan, man, they're gone. Be very, very careful. Be very, very careful. Submit your life to scripture. But also put men around you who aren't yes men. Are men who will just ignore the fact that you're doing everything your own way. Be very, very careful now, D. Edmund Hebert writes that the elder must not have a self-loving spirit which seeks to gratify self in arrogant disregard of others. I've seen men who had incredible talent accomplish very little. Because their goals always had something to do with self exaltation. They made every decision based upon how it would affect them, how it would prosper them, how it would lead to, um, again, a greater exaltation of themselves. How did it get, How would it give them more power? Do not do that, brethren. Do not do that. We are called to be servants, we are stewards and we lead not by giving our wisdom and opinions and making everybody dependent upon us. We lead by being stewards of the mysteries of Christ, by expounding the scriptures. And you need to understand that now, I want to stop here for a second, and I I want to say something that I think is, is very important. I know that many of you are reading the Bible and studying the Bible because maybe, well, you're preparing sermons or maybe you're still studying theology in, in a seminary or, or something. But brethren, how many of you are reading through the scriptures just to feed your own soul? How many of you are feeding on the scriptures, communing with God in the scriptures? You're not reading through the scriptures so that you can preach a better sermon or so that you can uh, write a book or, or be an expert in the next pastor's meeting in in France or Quebec, but you're reading through the scriptures that God might speak to you through the scriptures, that he might give you insight, that he might change you to be no- more knowledgeable in a, in a but in a real Experimental manner. Over the last uh, several years, I have passed through more trials than I ever thought I would have to pass through. In the last several months, I have passed through a difficult trial. And I have found that. That even though I would study hours and hours a day, it was usually for. Research on a book or the Gospels or. A sermon, but I found myself in my in the time of my darkest need, just on my knees beside my bed, reading through the scriptures and marking up my Bible everywhere. I never liked marking up my Bible because I I always wanted it pretty. (laughs) My Bible looks like a chicken ran across it with ink on its feet. Marking up, underlining, looking at it, pleading with God seeing things i've never seen before not because i want to write them in a book but because i must hear from god it's this type of, you say well why do you bring this up now it's this type of studying this reading that that causes you to see things about yourself and that will keep you from being self-willed you can read through the scriptures without an application ever being made to you, and that is very dangerous, extremely dangerous. Oh, brothers, I would have you on your knees reading through the Bible. Every day. Just reading through scripture. I have a I have a friend who got out of He became my friend after he got out of prison and uh, he was in there quite a long time. I'm amazed at his knowledge of the scriptures. Because he was locked away for years, he became a Christian after he went to prison. And he just read his Bible over and over and over and over and over again. And I would dare say that his experimental knowledge of the scripture is vastly superior to many who hold the office of elder. Another thing you young men need to realize that are more reformished in your theology is you need to realize that the Bible consists of more than two books. The Bible isn't just Romans and Ephesians. The Bible is also the book of Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah, the Chronicles, the Kings. The history books, Proverbs, Psalms. Do you see the Gospels? And the gospel demands. Every camp, including my own. Has error in it. Every one of us can take a good thing and go to an extreme. Every one of us need to be very afraid. If the big moment in our day is not reading through the scriptures to feed from the scriptures and crying out to Christ because we need him so desperately. You know, a parrot could read a good well, (laughs) couldn't read, but a parrot could repeat a lot of good remarks in theology and not understand a single thing he's saying. And then there are people who could read that theology and understand it, but they haven't experienced it. And then another thing, even though theology books are very, very important, even those men who read those books would tell you those books are no replacement at all for reading through the scriptures. Please, brethren, listen to me. As Paul, the aged, <laughs> Feed on scripture. Do your wife, your children, your church a favor. Feed on scripture. Read it from cover to cover. Draw just as much doctrine from the book of Zephaniah as you do from the book of Romans. I hope you know what I mean by that, that both books are inspired and both books have something to say to you. Do not get caught up in you read Romans and, and Ephesians, and that's about it. Read the whole book or you'll never understand Romans and Ephesians. Also, constant feeding upon the word of God is the best th- It's the best guard or protection against being self-willed. Even the best devotional book in the world cannot convict you of sin like the scriptures can convict you of sin when you're reading it. Now, in Titus 1 7, it also says that he must not be quick tempered, denote someone who is given to wrath or has a tendency to become angry quickly or is just always angry. When you look at the mark on their life, you just constantly see anger. We need to be very careful about that. There is an anger, there's a righteous anger, but we need to be very, very careful, very careful, and at times Christ was angry. He turned over the tables of the money changers. I mean, he came after them with a whip that he himself made, but he was not an angry person. Sometimes his anger seemed to overflow, but he was not an angry person. As a mature believer, the elder must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, I know this is true because it's in scripture, but I also know this is true because there have been times in my life when I have not walked in obedience to this. I became angry, especially when I've seen men who were abusive to God's sheep. But anger sometimes is necessary. But sin not. Sin not. And be very careful that when you are angry, that anger is still under control. I find little use in men. Who are angry all the time. I find little use in men, very little use in men who are never angry. I at one time I was te- well, several times, I, especially back 25, 30 years ago. I would teach on the wrath of God and people would come up to me and say, my God is not an angry God. If I had a dime for every time I heard someone say that. And I go, really? I said, what would you think about a person who you walked up to them and you said, how do you feel about Auschwitz and the extermination of six million Jews? How do you feel about it? Does it bother you? And the person said, no, it doesn't bother me. How would you feel about slavery and the colonies? How would you feel about that? If the person said, oh, you know, I'm neutral on it. What would you think about that person? You would think they were a monster? How do you feel about millions of children every year being killed in the womb? And now politicians saying that not only that, but after a child is born, there ought to be like a period of one month where you can abandon the child. So it dies on its own. What do you think about that? Does that bother you? No, that that doesn't bother me, you know, whatever, whatever. What would you think about a person who had that kind of attitude? You would think they were a monster. My dad was, um, he went to, when he went to church, he went to an African-American church. And he worked with African-Americans in different things of projects and things like that. And I remember one time something happened and my dad got so angry. I thought he was going to explode because of something somebody said. But he was right to be angry. Did you see what I'm saying? So if you're never angry in a world full of injustice, then really, what are you? There's a right to be angry, but that anger has to be under control. It has to be anger that is 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 in accordance with the word of God. And sometimes I can tell you that that I've been angry. Maybe for a right motive, but in a wrong way. So again, this is something that requires um, a balance. You see a man abandon his wife and children. To poverty. If that doesn't stir your heart, there's something dead inside of you. But you have to react appropriately. Okay? But at the same time, you should not be an angry person. I know people who are in discernment ministries. Um, They're kind of like apologists. And they, they do a very good job, they're very Christ centered. Sometimes they get in the thick of things and it's. They have to say some hard things, but if you know them and you know their life, you know they're not an angry person who just wants to grind an axe with everybody. But then there are other men who truly are angry all the time and all they want to do is fight. And that's not right. So you see, in the Christian life, there's a balance, isn't there? Almost with everything, there is a balance. Now. The scriptures abound with warnings to avoid a quick tempered man. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back Proverbs twenty nine eleven. Do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot tempered man, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself Proverbs twenty two twenty four through twenty five. A quick tempered and angry man will often produce a quick tempered and angry congregation. One of the things that you need to realize is that congregations, for the most part, will take on something of the personality of their leaders or leader. And that's why it's so important for you and I to be balanced, and it's why we should walk in such humility and be willing to receive the correction of others, because that balance is very, very delicate. There was a preacher by the name of Conrad Merle. He'll never be famous, but he he was truly a man of God. Who had an impact on so many lives, and he used to say that walking on the truth, walking in the truth was a very difficult thing. It was like walking on the edge of a razor blade and you could fall off either side. You can be a person who's angry all the time. That's wrong. You can be a person who's never angry. And that's wrong. We must be controlled by the spirit now, not quick tempered. Then he goes on in Titus 1 8 to say that he must love. The good. Titus 1 8. Um, Loving what is good. It's from the Greek adjective, which denotes someone. um, Well, the entire phrase is translated from the Greek adjective, uh, which refers to someone who is a friend or lover of the good. Now. There is a sense in in which this should have a very wide context. I think we could include here not only the idea of lover of what is good, but lover of what is beautiful. There's an aesthetic to life. Um, I have met men who. Although proper ministers. They seem to almost like part of their soul was dead. They 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 didn't see beauty. They 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 weren't lovers of good things. And I think that um, the more we're ministering in a world that is. Becoming so dark and so twisted. That that we need to identify that which is good and we need to love it and appreciate it. I remember Angel Cominades. Um, A man I talk a lot about. He's gone home to be with the Lord. He was a poor pastor in the north of Peru who. Oh, the impact of his life. The number of churches planted because of him is extraordinary. But he was he was so funny. He was a little man. And we would go into the jungle or go into the mountains. And. um, He loved everything. I mean, he'd look at. The river and marvel or the whirlpools that we would go by or the size of the leaves in the jungle or he would find um, fossils, you know, uh, up in the mountains or he, he just loved everything that was a part of God's creation. That was good. He loved the music. And, and I would like to see you be a person with a wide context here. I would hope that you could go into. Uh, even an art museum, and see beauty. I would hope that you could listen to music and love what is good. I would hope that you would see virtue in other people and actually delight in it. That you would, uh, you know, we hear all these people today, antinomian, you know, they say that... The law is not for us today and all these different things. Now, certainly the law has to be interpreted correctly in light of the gospel, but I don't hate the law. I'm not saved by the law. I'm no longer condemned by the law, but there's nothing in the law that I find offensive. I find it wise and beautiful. Do you see the commandments of God are not burdensome? Learn to appreciate that which is good. And know that anything that is good is somehow the result of God's good work, of God's grace. This type of attitude is so important because there's so much darkness, so much evil, so much ugly in the world. That you need to purposely seek to set your mind on good things, the scripture, the gospel, virtue. And every beautiful thing that comes forth from that, every beautiful thing that comes forth from the grace of God, admire the goodness that you see in your wife, the goodness you see in your children. Any goodness. To be otherwise is to become a very closed and and dark and cynical person, love what is good. Deeds. Words. And people. Look for the good. As ministers of the gospel, we must deal with sin. We must call it out. Must fight against it in our own lives, must help others who are struggling with sin. And I'm sure that you men talk to a lot of people about their sin. Have you ever walked up to somebody and talked to them about their virtue? On the news, we almost never hear any good news. There's good news out there, isn't there? But good news doesn't sell. So you'll turn on the news tonight and it'll all be bad, or at least most of it, right? We'll talk to believers when we see that they're in sin. But have you ever talked to a believer when you've seen a virtue? And admired it and encouraged them in it. Very important. So he loves what is good in Titus one eight. Also, he is just so let's look at that. It says, but hospitable, loving, what is good, sensible, just he's just. Now, what does this mean? It's from the Greek adjective, which denotes that um, that the elder number one. Lives in a manner that is conformed to the character and will of God, the standard for all justice and equity. The standard for all righteousness is the character of God revealed in the will of God. So he he seeks to conform his life, not to this world standard, but to God's standard of justice. Furthermore, it can refer that he's upright in his dealings with others. Inside and outside of the church. He's just he's not ripping anybody off. Three, he is fair and impartial in his judgments, especially those concerning the church. He's not swayed because one man is poor and another man is rich. He's not swayed either way. He's not going to give favor to the rich man, nor is he going to give favor to the poor man. He's going to deal with things. Justly. In his own personal finances, he's going to not be trying to cheat the government, he's going to be just, he's going to be just in all his ways, which again, primarily refers to his conformity to the character of God as it is revealed in the scriptures, as it is revealed in the will of God, so he's just. Also in Titus 1 8, he's devout, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just devout. Now, the word devout uh, comes from a Greek adjective, which denotes one who is pure or unpolluted from sin. It is often translated holy. But includes the idea also of dedication, consecration or devotion to God. Now, here's what I want you to see. Being devout is just not simply separating yourself from that which is evil or wrong or off colored. It's not just separating from sin, it is separating ourselves unto God. If you just separate, look, if you just take away. Sin. That's not enough. If you just take away sin, you're going to return to sin. You've got to take away sin and add something else. Something needs to fill that gap. And it's not just obedience. It's not just rules of righteousness. You fill the gap with God. It is separation from sin in order to be devoted. To God. Devoted to God, the elder is to consciously and painstakingly separate himself from all that defiles or pollutes and devote himself to God and his service. You see, separation. And drawing near separation from all that pollutes, drawing near unto God and committing oneself to God's service. Paul, the apostle, manifested such devotion in his own life and ministry. In 1 Thessalonians 2.10, he wrote to the church, You are witnesses, and so is God. Now, look at that. Not only were they witnesses, which is important, but their witness is fallible. He said, But God, who interprets everything correctly, is also a witness. Paul writes, You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly. Same word and uprightly and blamelessly, we have behaved toward you. And so here, devotion is also related to being blameless and upright. Now, young men. We need to be very, very careful of legalism. Legalism is deadly. It is deadly. And legalism is it comes from and goes back to pride and self-exaltation. We have no righteousness of our own apart from Christ, please understand that. But I am really disturbed at a lot of young ministers who not only seem to have a broad liberty. But to flaunt that liberty so quickly in front of other believers, you need to be very, very careful of that. Because that's not love. That's not love. We need to be holy, not legalist. But we ourselves need to separate not only from sin, but that which simply is. Worthless in light of the gospel, and we need to give ourselves to higher, nobler things. And though we disdain all legalism and we do recognize that as Christians, we have liberty, even those liberties that are granted us in the scriptures, we will be careful in our use of them so as not to offend a weaker brother or sister in Christ. Now, in Titus 1 8, it goes on, says hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Self-control. This is extremely important. It's our last uh, qualification. Comes from the Greek adjective, which denotes that someone is strong or possesses mastery of something such as a profession or craft. They're a master of it. The elder must demonstrate a mastery over himself, his thoughts, his words, his deeds, his passions and appetites, his strengths and weaknesses, self-control is also one of the manifestations of the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5 23 and evidence that one is filled. With the spirit. Now, this is especially important when we talk about remember, we've already talked about anger. And that sometimes it is more than appropriate to be angry, but we must learn to control our anger, to line it up with scripture. Now, a mastery over oneself, a mastery over our thoughts. (sighs) I still find this difficult. The I I don't know if this originated with Martin Lloyd-Jones, but. I think I've read him to say, you know, do not let your heart preach to you. But preach the word of God to your heart. We can have so many aberrant thoughts that are produced in our own heart that come from the suggestions of other or even worse. Are the result of the demonic. We can be carried away by wrong thinking. By wrong fears, by unfounded anxiety, by unfounded accusations, by by so many different things, and so we need to have. Mastery over our thoughts, our words, and our actions, our passions, our appetites, physical and internal. You see. And this is something that requires the Spirit's power. Brethren, we are so dependent. We're so dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Um, I've lived decades longer than most of you. Years ago, when I first became a Christian, if someone would would have said, we're dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit, we're dependent upon the word of God, we're dependent upon prayer, we're dependent upon grace, empowering grace. I would have agreed to it all. Sincerely, I would have agreed to it all. But I realize now I wouldn't even have understood what I was agreeing to. As the years pass, I see more and more. Absolute necessity of Christ's power. In order to not only attain to, but maintain. Any form of virtue. Do not reach an old age lamenting that you gave yourself too much to busyness. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm sure it's been said by many. I never met a man who on his deathbed regretted that he read the Bible too much. I never met a man on his deathbed who regretted that he prayed. Too much or depended upon Christ too much. Or lamented that he depended upon himself too little. No, never, never. You see, you young men need more than a seminary. Seminary is good. If you're in a good one. (laughs) But you need more than that. You need to spend time alone with God. Lay aside as your priority, any sort of plan or vision and make your priority, knowing God and being Christlike, make that your priority. I've been involved in missions since almost since my conversion. It has been good to wear myself out. Like they said about Robert Murray McShane, God gave him a uh, horse and a message and he killed the horse. (laughs) But if I could go back, I would spend less time in activity and even more time alone with God. Feeding upon his word, not just studying it so that I can know more than the next guy at the Bible conference, but feeding upon his word. Just read it. Just read it. Relish it. Digest it. Feed upon it. Pray, 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 pray. The greatest gift, maybe, that God could ever give you would be a revelation of your weakness. You see, he could reveal his strength to you, but it would make very little difference in your life if you didn't realize how much you needed it. So please think about these things. All right. Well, I wrote something here for a conclusion and then we'll pray. To conclude this study regarding the character requirements of elders, it is important to iterate three great truths. First, these requirements are not simply things to consider when selecting elders, but are actual requirements of eldership. To ignore these requirements are to overlook serious character flaws in an elder's life is to allow an unqualified man to lead the church. I don't care how smart he is. As a matter of fact, any natural gift that is not submitted to God and God's spirit is dangerous. Second. Well, I guess it is. Well, second, the elder must be above reproach in all these character traits. This does not mean that he must be sinless, but that there must be no character flaw or ongoing sin that would actually disqualify him. Oh, brothers, listen to me. In one year, I will have been a Christian for 40 years. I thought when I was younger that I would have made far more progress in the faith. than I have made. We will always be in need of grace. Only Christ is completely perfectly above reproach. But if there's an area in our lives where. We're just not getting victory at all. It's an outstanding character flaw. Then we need to be very careful before we take upon ourselves the mantle of an elder. Another thing is you can have these virtues. but It's kind of the creation of the universe. God not only has to create the universe, he has to sustain it. Our virtue is not static, it's dynamic, it's fluid. So a man could start off well and finish poorly. And this is one of the reasons why there's no such thing as junior elders, okay? Some of you guys who are church planting and then maybe you recommend elders to the church and the church votes on them and then you treat them as junior elders. They're either elders or they're not. They can either speak into your life or they can't. You're either going to become subject to them as they become subject to you or the whole thing's a charade. We need people to speak into our lives, just like I needed my 16 year old son to speak into my life. Do you see? It's so very important. Third, we must not overlook character flaws simply because a man possesses a charismatic personality or is a gifted communicator or is a shrewd manipulator. Nothing takes the place of Christ like virtue. And that's another thing you need to set your goal for that. When we look out at the world and I'm sure that I am not the only one who feels this way. I'm sure that there are others who are who exceed me in this matter. You look out over the world, you see how lost it is, how few workers there are, how much needs to be done. And you want to go out there, you want to preach and witness and pray and all sorts of things. But realize this, you're no good to anybody. If you're not communing with Christ in His Word and prayer, you're no good to your wife, you're no good to you, your children, the church, or the lost world. The world needs to see godly men. And since we'll not always be perfectly godly men, it needs to see men that are also broken who are confessing, who are vulnerable to rebuke. Do you see? This is so very, very important. All right. Well, I've actually got to go here and pack boxes again and I I've got other things that I have to do, but it is always a pleasure for me to uh, to be with you. And I hope next year that uh, that I will be able to be with you personally in Paris. And um, even though my absence this time, I'm sure benefited many greatly because David Vaughan was able to take my place and uh, I have a great deal of admiration for him his ministry let's pray father thank you for this day and i pray lord for all especially the young men who heard this oh god that you would bless them that you would strengthen them that you'd grant them the grace of humility so that they not have to be humbled That you cause a a deep uh, dependence upon you to be formed in their heart by grace. And that they not be, Lord, like a horse that needs a bridle in its mouth to be pulled here or there. Oh, God, please, I pray that. The grace that you have given me and my generation might seem like a small thing compared to the grace that you give them. That they might excel. Go beyond their fathers in piety and in usefulness to your kingdom. Father, please help these young men and all who hear this message today. In Jesus' name, amen.